0: Okay, while the Blue Buckets are doing their rounds, Uh, if you have a Bible with you, would you like to be finding the letter of 1 Timothy in the New Testament? If you don't have a Bible with you, then you can uh, follow the scripture references that we look at on uh, on the screen, so not to worry. But if you do have one, that's where you can be turning to, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2. This is um, uh, the next message in a a series we've been doing, looking at the letter of 1 uh, 1 Timothy. So we've been focusing on chapter 2 for a while, that begins talking about prayer, the the priority of praying, even praying for kings and emperors, um, praying all sorts of requests, praying for the whole world, praying for everyone, because there's one God, there's one uh, mediator, Christ, and he's the one way in which we can be saved. Uh, more recently, for those who have been amongst us, uh, Paul then talks, about, uh, talks to, to men and women on the subject of praying, and now we get to verse 11, which I'll read, uh, read verse 11 to the end of the chapter. Uh, Paul writes, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, she must be silent For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love and holiness with propriety. Those are the verses that we're going to spend some time looking at this morning. Uh, This is not a drill, Uh, we're not here by accident. Um, It might be a slight exaggeration to say that I've been looking forward to preaching these verses uh, but, uh, we're in 1 Timothy deliberately, and that involves looking at these verses. And you might be tempted to think, in fact, many people are tempted to think, oh, Paul, this has been so encouraging, why do you have to go and ruin it? Oh, with these verses, it's tempting to move on, but we won't. We're going to look at these verses. I actually wonder for us in the 21st century, if the, if the sense of like shock grows as chapter 2 unfolds. We didn't find it too shocking to be told to pray for kings. We might find it a little bit unusual that he has to say different things to men and women. Why not just say the same message to everybody? But he starts to speak to men and women distinctly. In our day and age, it can be unusual to do that. And and it's at this point that it really raises hackles. I actually wonder if in the first century it was the other way around. The biggest shock was pray for emperors. Because I think there'd be a church in the first century Century experiencing the pain of persecution, going, You what? And if you like, the shock seemed to dissipate as the chapter goes on. Nevertheless, we have to confront the fact these are verses that may shock us. They will certainly shock many in the culture in which we find ourselves. Indeed, many Christians are shocked by them. So whole books have been written just on these verses. They are hotly debated. And in a sense, I'd like to say rightly so. But it, So it's important that we give them our attention. And therefore, it's important uh, that I do my best to carefully lead us through. And I'm going to do that in this way. Uh, I'm going to start by looking at three ways in which the text gets wrongly softened by Christians or people reading the Bible. Uh, because it is so Shocking, we may think. Um, we find ways to kind of slightly soften the tone, soften what Paul says. I'll talk about those in a minute. After that, I'm going to say there are three words, specific words in this text, that we will need, need to give our attention to if we are to rightly understand what Paul is talking about. So we'll look at those three words, and then we'll spend uh, a bit of time saying, here, here are three uh, reactions three responses that we may have or we may experience in light of the text. And we'll look at all of those three responses and I'll invite you to to kind of consider what might be helpful to look at. Uh, If you identify with a particular response I I mentioned later. So you could say it's a three-point sermon. Or you could say it's a nine-point sermon. (laughs) But it's fine. Sometime before this evening... I'm sure the student team will bring lunch through to us while we're kind of looking at the text. I uh, I jest, almost. Um, Okay, so let's make a start. Three ways in which the text is wrongly softened. Number one, it's just personal. It's just a personal thing. There'll be those who would say, what Paul means to say is, I personally do not permit something. I personally would teach this. Um, Here's what I would say softens the text, makes it less kind of emphatic, makes it a bit vague, and therefore we might find comfort. Thank goodness, Paul is actually open minded. There are lots of different perspectives, there are lots of different ways of interpreting things. It's not entirely crystal clear. I'm not sure God ultimately minds. If he does, he would have made it clearer. And therefore, I've had to do some thinking, and here's my opinion. Here's what I've come up with. So I know there are lots of different opinions out there in the churches that I'm involved with. This is what I would say. This is what I would permit and not permit. It sounds very open-minded, doesn't it? Potentially. Well, it shouldn't. Actually, that should worry us massively. It's ugly big time. Why? Why? If that is what Paul is meaning, then he's, commun- he's communicating almost, well, God's open-minded, God's left it up for discussion, but I've decided I don't permit something. At that point, Paul would be making more of his own authority than God's. Uh, so I think we need to steer away from saying, it's just personal, the word isn't there anyway. I personally, it's just been added in by some people. To try to soften the text. That's one way. Another way is this. The text may be softened by people saying, it's just a local thing. It's just local. In other words, there is a specific, there was a specific problem in Ephesus that needed Timothy's and Paul's attention. So Timothy is writing the letter, and at this point, it just applies to a problem. In Ephesus. Now, there were problems in Ephesus. It was one of the biggest cities then in the world, and their culture was in some way centered around the worship of a god called Diana. And the fruit of that idolatry is that there were problems. Uh, one of those would have been women domineering or ruling over men. And therefore, some would conclude, having looked at other sources outside the Bible, that's the problem. If that was the problem, we can see now it's not applicable in the same way. It was just for then. That might be appealing. Let me tell you why that would be a mistake as well, to to draw that conclusion. If we conclude that these verses in particular are just about Ephesus thousands of years ago, What we're doing in effect is saying this the Bible can't be entirely trusted. It's not wholly reliable. Well, not on every issue, not on every topic, because there's this other information outside the Bible. That's what really draws it to light. So, what we're saying in effect is there is an authority higher than the Word of God. And the danger, indeed, the likelihood, is having drawn that conclusion, it might lead us to doubt other passages of the Bible. Well, is this true? Can this be trusted? Was that just addressing issues of the day? Look, the whole Bible was written to particular people in a particular time, to particular cultures, to particular problems, but it's recognized that it has authority from God that actually speaks to every culture in all times under the sun. If we say some bits only applied then, it might lead us to the same conclusion elsewhere. Miracles, oh, I'm not so sure about that. The virgin birth, mm, well, did Jesus really die on the cross? It might lead us to lots of other doubts, which actually then just undermines our confidence in the authority of God's word. So it's not just personal, and it's not just local. And a third way the text might be softened is by saying... It's just unclear. Now, it's true to say some passages in the Bible are harder to understand than others. A good principle then is to look at all that the Bible says on a particular subject or doctrine, interpret the tricky ones, the ones that we might find more difficult, in light of the ones that are more clear. That's a good principle. But a further step can be taken, subtly, in this way. On this subject, on this doctrine, on this issue, I'm going to cherry pick a verse over there that I like, and I'm going to say that that's like the trump card that beats all other verses. So all the other verses over here that I don't understand, or dare I say, just don't like. Look, I can conveniently dismiss them, because I've got the most important verse Here's the most important verse. If you want to know what Paul thought about men and women, if you want to know what he thought about the church, then go somewhere else. Go to another verse. This one here is just unclear. Now, If that's the case, we have to again go through our Bible and not just look at the red letters which show us what Jesus himself said whilst he's on the earth. Maybe there are other passages in the Bible uh, and rather be red or written in black ink, maybe they should just be in grey ink. All the ones that are just unclear. And we can't possibly understand, so don't even try. Can you see how that might not be the most helpful way of proceeding either? I would just like to say, as we, as we get into the text in a bit more detail, let's firstly consider a bunch of people in a place called Berea. Okay? Would you like to turn to Acts chapter 17? And we'll read there from verse 11. We don't know much about people. In Berea, at this particular point in uh, Paul's ministry. But what we do know is really special. So, reading from Acts chapter 17 and verse 11, we're told this. Now, the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians. Pity the Thessalonians at that point. In God's word for all time, it's been recorded that they're less noble than somebody else. But let's keep going. They were of more noble character for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. That is brilliant. That is worth us considering. That is an approach to hearing the word of God to always adopt. Why? Well, notice their eagerness on the one hand. You could perhaps let's kind of picture their faces as Paul is speaking the message and it's like yeah just keep going give us more give us more we're we're drinking it up we're receiving it but notice it's not just that they do this next step which is to examine the scriptures for themselves every day to see if what Paul said was true they didn't just take Paul's word for it they weren't just lapping it up oh It wasn't as though they could just say, oh Paul, we've heard about you, we know your reputation, and the way that you carry yourself in public, the sense of authority of your teaching, all those funny anecdotes and illustrations, we just love it. Just tell it, Keep, keep going, we'll just drink it in. You can say anything, and we'll accept it. They weren't saying that, they were eager, but they weren't gullible. You can tell us anything, and we'll believe it. No, they went to the word of God every day, to examine, is this true? They'd understood something about the authority of scripture, understood something about God's word, and therefore they did Paul the honor of checking. Is he right? Let's look at the word ourselves. So they weren't gullible, and nor were they cynical. Well, you just can't tell us anything. We don't believe you. We've heard it all before. We're jaded, and uh, we've had enough. Uh, They they didn't adopt that, cynicism, nor did they adopt some kind of gullibility. But they were eager as they examined God's word. Let's adopt the same attitude and practice when we hear the word of God. So those were the three ways the text can be wrongly softened. It's just personal, it's just local, it's just unclear. Now, let's look at three words. Three words that I believe will help us to to rightly understand what Paul is talking about. And they have to be found back in our text in verse 12, where he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. Let's look at three words, teach, authority or to have authority, and then the word silent. These will help us to understand what Paul was meaning. For us, the English word teach has a very broad range of uh, meanings and it can apply in any number of different settings. It might apply, well, it does apply right now when the church gets together. It might apply on, uh, on Monday if you go to university lecture or you're in your teacher's classroom and you are being taught. It will apply at home when mum and dad want to teach you something. It will apply elsewhere. And sometimes we might even say, oh, I really want to teach that person a lesson. You know, we mean a whole bunch of different things by the word teach. And therefore we might think of this word here in the Bible in a similar way, it's talking about a really broad range of activity. A bit like, and I wonder if this is like, if you experience this way near where you grew up, on the village green or on the estate, there was this patch of grass in between houses, a bit of space, a place just to spread out and have some fun. But there was a sign and it says no ball games. That is, in a succinct way, that's a really impressive sign. It rules out so many things. Because it means no... You have to write a big, long list. No to football. No to cricket. No to quick cricket. No to French cricket. No to rounders. No to baseball. No to table tennis, if you would like to get a table tennis table and drag it out somehow. No dodgeball. You know. Loads of things. No rugby, strange ball. You know. I don't know why I didn't think of this myself, though. Oh, I didn't realise it leaves open, this little chink. Badminton. Why did I never think of badminton? Because <laughs> a shuttle cot doesn't do any damage. You could, you know, that's not going to break a window or smash a car, is it? Um, anyway, <laughs> coming back to the text. Um, does Paul mean I don't permit teaching in this way in that kind of no ball games kind of way catch-all term for lots and lots of things in life no why because we can go to lots of places in the bible which i will refer to briefly that give us positive examples of women teaching and i will mention some references but we're not going to turn to all of them because you need to have lunch in about an hour Um, But here here would be a few examples of positive, godly examples of women teaching uh, in the New Testament. Um, One would be in Acts chapter 18 and verse 26, for the note-takers amongst you, where we meet Priscilla and Aquila. And it's interesting, Priscilla, who is married to Aquila, she's mentioned first. What happens there is that they hear Apollos preaching zealously, In many ways, helpfully, um, but they spot something. He's he's only heard of the baptism of John. He doesn't know, actually, about the baptism that Jesus inaugurated. So whilst he's sharing lots of truth in a helpful way, what Priscilla and Aquila do is invite him home for a meal, and what they do is uh, help explain to him the way of the Lord more Accurately at that point, Priscilla seems to be taking the lead and taking some initiative along with her husband in instructing this young, zealous preacher. There is an, a positive example of women teaching. We all may, may also refer actually to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, and also referred to in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. Mentioned there are Lois and Eunice. Lois is Timothy's grandma, and uh, Eunice is his mum. And Paul commends those women for having taught Timothy the scriptures from his infancy. It wasn't his dad or his granddad. It was his mum and his grandmother. They brought the word of God to Timothy, so from his early days, he has this foundation, this biblical worldview that will help him, it's going to make him wise for salvation. And also, then Paul's recognizing that you know, you've known this stuff from your infancy, and now you're fruitfully passing it on, you're helping others. Praise God for Lois and Eunice and what they passed on to Timothy. We also see. Uh, In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16, kind of the dynamic of church life that Paul again is encouraging. Because in Colossians chapter 3 verse 16, he writes there, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, talking to the whole church, let it dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another. He's not just talking to men at that point. He's kind of saying, church, you're God's people. And as you fill yourselves up with the word of God, with the word uh, of Christ, uh, then you have this amazing resource and reservoir to share with one another. And you teach and you admonish one another. Admonish isn't like a smack around the face. Admonish is just correcting. I don't think that's what Priscilla did when she met Apollos. I think she just admonished in love and graciously and with more understanding and knowledge than he had. So that's to be a dynamic in church life. Men and women teaching one another and not being so coy as they never say, actually, this is what it means. That's a healthy dynamic of church life. So to recap, when Paul says here, I do not permit a woman to teach... It's not no ball games. It's not a no ball games sign, covering all and sundry. It's specific. It's focused to a particular type of teaching. Otherwise, we wouldn't see all of those positive examples in Scripture. Okay, that's the first word. The second word. This will help us too, is authority or to have authority. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority. This helps us to understand what he means by teaching let me explain at this point paul is not saying i do not permit two things teaching over here and having authority over there he's using two words to describe one thing so if i were to say today as the meeting finishes go and have a tea or coffee but you are not allowed it's not permitted in the jubilee center i'm afraid to have mint or to have tea. You can't have mint. So no, uh, no chewing gum, not minty chewing gum anyway, uh, no polos, no breath freshener, no mint plant. Nothing to do with mint shall be in the Jubilee Center. And nothing, I mean, this would be like travesty for some of you anyway, there's no tea no english breakfast no darjeeling no assam no decafel grey nothing no fruit tea to be banned coffee's the way he said now paul is not talking about two things he's using two words to describe one thing he's done this loads of times in this chapter so far for example in chapter 2 and verse 2 he says pray for kings and all those in authority. He's, he's talking about kind of one group of people. Kings helps us to see what he's talking about, those who lead a nation. But those who have authority, he's recognizing that it's a slightly bigger group. People who have and carry authority that shapes society in significant ways, whether or not they are a king or the ruler of a nation. So pray for them. Pray for people in uh, a variety of positions of authority and then he goes on he says that we may live peaceful and quiet lives it's not that we might say thank you God answering our prayers our lives are peaceful but Lord Jesus please move in power may they be quiet it's not two different sorts of life he's talking about something together peaceful and quiet lives to explain what he's getting at. He does it time and time again, and that's what uh, later on he's doing here. He's not talking about teaching and separately authority. He's saying there is a type of teaching that involves authority in the life of the church. So this teaching that he's not permitting is teaching that is uh, that carries authority in the local church when the church gathers together in public like this. So for us in our society, I think that's talking about a Sunday. But if we're in another nation, we may be meeting on a Friday. or that would be the time when the whole church gets together or the church corporately and publicly meets to worship and receive teaching. It's that teaching with authority that he's talking about. Some people might say, well, that word authority... He's talking about something inherently negative. In other words, Paul is saying, I don't permit a woman to bring heavy teaching or oppressive, domineering teaching that will just do damage. Let me just take a moment to say why I don't think that's what this passage means. And the reason is this. If that were the instruction that Paul is giving, why is it just to women? Is it the case that men are allowed to teach in a domineering and oppressive and heavy way? No. Indeed, if we look at the context we see earlier on, the problem stems from the fact that certain men are teaching false doctrine. Why are you having a go at the women then? It wouldn't make sense. Or certainly Paul could have said it more clearly if somehow that's what he was focusing on. Paul is talking about something positive and necessary in the life of the church that women are not permitted to do. In that sense, this word silent applies. It's not... This is our third word. It's not a complete silence when the church gets together. It... There are lots of passages in the Bible where it's evident that Paul's expectation was when you get together, men and women will pray. When you get together, men and women can prophesy. And there are loads of gifts of the Spirit that men and women are to exercise when the church gets together, even as we heard in, our, in the introduction to the meeting. Whether it's a hymn or a tongue or an interpretation or a prophecy or a word of encouragement or exhortation or instruction, there are lots of spiritual gifts and they all apply. Uh, They're all accessible for all of us, men and women. So it is just in this sense of authoritative teaching in the life of the church that Paul is saying women are not per- permitted to do but they are to be silent. Now even that word silent can be further explained by reference to what we've seen in the chapter so far because actually it's the same word we've seen a number of times. When we were praying for peaceful and quiet lives that qu- Word quiet is the same word here. Uh, and we see that later on uh, in verse 11, a woman should learn in quietness. So this, we're not talking about some heavy-handed, absolute, throughout the meeting, silence on every matter. It's focus. There's stillness uh, in this regard. Now, I can imagine three reactions to what Paul is saying here. If you've kind of caught the flow so far of what Paul doesn't mean and what Paul does mean, I think there could be three reactions, and you may identify with one of these more than uh, another, in which case I'll try to uh, just direct you to some other helpful uh, passages in the Scripture to, uh, to consider the first reaction I could foresee is outrage. This is outrageous. Um, There are loads of things that happen in the world where, quite frankly, outrage is entirely appropriate. Um, And even uh, recently, we keep being reminded, necessarily so, of multiple examples in the world where women have suffered at the hands of men who have abused a position of power or a position of trust in some way. I don't really think you'll need much reminding, but let me remind you anyway the revelations from Hollywood about the behaviour of Harvey Weinstein, who could make or break a young actress's career, and so he exploits them and preys on them to his own advantage. At least these are all the allegations that have come uh, to light uh, recently. What's clear, or what I hope is clear, is this isn't just about Harvey. I don't think this is even just about Hollywood, which is a good point that Tom Hanks made. I think this is a worldwide problem. When you have men in positions of power who allow any ugly attitude to grow up in their hearts, that will spill out in really ugly uh, abusive and harmful ways of relating to women. Uh, we've seen that in, in Hollywood, we see it in social media, with so many people and people even that uh, you may be in this room or you may know someone who has uh, put hashtag me too. And it all makes for really grim reading, but it's necessary. And it's necessary to uh, to commend and encourage Those women who've been brave enough to say, this has been my experience, and at that point, guys, for us not to be silent. Oh, goodness, yeah, that is bad. Oh, dear, he got caught. No, there's got to be a stronger response to say, we stand with you, we agree, and as men, we want to model something different. Otherwise, it can just be implied that we're not that fussed or we don't think it's that big an issue. No, it is a big issue, and it's outrageous. Um, uh, we could also consider Anya Aluko, the, uh, the female in, uh, professional football player uh, who has 100-and-something caps for England, and after all these weeks and months, eventually, in front of a parliamentary select committee, it comes to light, at last, she was telling the truth. She's experienced racism and bullying within the FA, and the FA have said that amount of money that we said we would give you in compensation for what you've experienced, uh, oh, we're going to have to acknowledge, yes, we did withhold that from you, or half of it, in order to get you to say something that kind of would reflect well on us. So you just look through it and think, oh, what, a, what an ugly mess of an abuse of authority. And someone dares to stand up in the midst of it and say, it's not right and she's closed down, uh, or further bullied, and so on. Uh, It's not something I say uh, share loads, but um, before working for the church, I worked in the probation service as a probation officer, and so I would meet with uh, different uh, men and a few women who had been convicted at court of uh, of different crimes. I didn't have a particular specialism, but I did work with a lot of men who committed... uh, Uh, domestic abuse towards their partner and that could be criminal damage to threaten her it could be physical assault it could be harassment uh, a whole variety Um, some imprisoned and some in serving community uh, sentences and uh, and there I I would try uh, along with other probation colleagues to try to get behind this way of thinking uh, in men uh, that were in those positions well that really the, the, the main issue for them was their partner needed to change. If she would only behave differently, if she would only learn, if she would only change her ways of, of living and behaving, well, then it wouldn't have happened. I wouldn't have got violent. I wouldn't have lost my temper. I wouldn't have become controlling. So until she changes, what could I do? A classic example of like shifting blame and shifting responsibility Onto her. And for me, uh, one of the challenges in spending time with those guys was not only trying to unpick that rationalization in their thinking, but sometimes recognizing in my own heart, my own way of thinking, how that could creep, that attitude, that way of thinking can creep into me as well. And I could see that in my own life, that sense of entitlement, or that sense of, of blame being elsewhere, not my responsibility. Coupled with this sense of outrage, then, we could also consider look, we've got a queen on the throne in this country, and we have a female prime minister, and then we turn to this passage and think, what on earth are we to make of this? It could seem to affirm ugly attitudes of male privilege when we read on, Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived, it was Eve, as if it's kind of saying, well, it's all her fault then, isn't it? So if you have a response of outrage to this text, may I just take a few moments to coach you through it, to help you see what the Bible is saying. You could notice in verse 11 that it says, a woman should learn. Again, through the filter of outrage, you might think, oh, how patronizing, of course. But remember, the Bible is God's word to every culture throughout time and under the sun. Therefore, it's, about, it's bound to offend some cultures with a verse here and offend other cultures with a different verse over there. Uh, recently, uh, I was in India with uh, Blessam. We visited a church just outside Delhi. And uh, their way of, if you like, doing social action was to set up a women's empowerment centre a building that they managed to acquire right next to the slums. And they would spend time encouraging women and training and teaching women who were basically destitute, who was, no one was looking to protect. No one was considering uh, how to train uh, and, and help them. They were kind of a forgotten people. And so the church rises up and says, no, we're going to help we're going to empower. We'll do language lessons. We'll do kind of skills lessons. We'll do IT computing courses. They did any number of courses to help women who would otherwise be unsupported with nothing and are forgotten people because of their convictions. Got, the Word of God has got hold of them and they want to show what the world, what the gospel is like. So don't miss that. But also, when you turn to looking at verses 13 and 14, you need to recognize, look, firstly, they they're actually pointing us to creation. They're not pointing us to Ephesian culture. They're pointing us right back to creation and what happened then. So you want to understand these verses here, we can go back to Genesis 3 and say, "Well, what actually did happen uh, And Genesis 2? You know, what? Adam was formed first. God made him from the dust of the earth, breathed life into him, And he was given an instruction, amongst other things. Adam was told, You can eat from the fruit of any of these trees, but that one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you cannot touch that sorry, you cannot eat the fruit from that tree, or you will die. Very soon after that, um, it's revealed to Adam that he's too weak. He's insufficient for the call of God on his life. He can't carry it out by himself. And so God puts him to sleep, takes a rib from his own body and fashions Eve to be alongside him. I love what it uh, says somewhere. Uh, Matthew Henry, I think, has commented, "'She wasn't taken from his foot.' to be under him she wasn't taken from his head to be over him she was taken from his side to be with him alongside him we've got the first human team there's no sin there's no there's no oppression they are just working together in beautiful harmony both reflecting uh, the, uh, both in the image of God and uh, uh, and furthering God's purposes later on That harmony was disrupted by sin and the serpent comes into the garden. There is an order to God's creation. There's a sense in which Adam had primary responsibility for their their relationship uh, and for the work that God had called them to and the buck stops or stopped with Adam. When they both sinned, what does God do? God comes walking through the garden and then he says, where are you? And At that point, you, he's not talking to them. It's singular. He's talking to one person in Genesis chapter 3, verse 9. He's talking to Adam. And he speaks to Adam, and he wants an account, an explanation from Adam first. Adam, what have you allowed to happen? This is your responsibility. What does Adam do? He says, well, this woman that you gave me Gave me the fruit. So I ate. It's, a classic, it's the first and most classic example of blame shifting. This was her fault, Lord. Then, it's your fault. You gave it to me. Then, what could I do? It's not my fault, but yes, I did eat. See, the problem in the garden was Adam's silence. Adam was Passive. The serpent goes to Eve. The serpent kind of goes against God's order and tries to trick her. We don't know if God said directly to Eve, don't eat the fruit from that one tree over there. Maybe it was Adam's responsibility to tell her. I think he did do that. But I would note that Eve wasn't entirely clear. Because when, the e, when, when, when Satan comes to Eve says, did God really say you can't eat the fruit from any tree in the garden? Well, no, that's clearly not what God says. She's not tricked by that. But no, he said there's just one tree that we can't eat from and that we mustn't touch it or we'll die. No, no, no. God didn't say you couldn't touch the tree. God says you can't eat the fruit from that tree. So yes, she was deceived. She was tricked, but we could then say Adam went into it with his eyes wide open and his mouth zipped shut. Why did he not step in? Why did he not say anything? Why did he not help? Why did he not step in? Passivity. So when Paul writes in the New Testament, sin came into the world through one man. He says, we're either in Adam or we're in Christ, can you see that the responsibility rests with Adam, rests with him. We're either in Adam or in Christ. We're not in Eve or Christ. So it's not absolving Adam of responsibility and shifting it all on to Eve. Far from it. But he let down his guard and she suffered as a result. Notice too that the serpent wants Eve to focus on the prohibition. Rather than the permission that God had given, you can eat from any tree in the garden. And like I say, she wasn't tricked by the first thing that the serpent said, but it's almost like the poison that's already started to go in. And she's doubting the goodness of God. Yeah, God did say we can't eat from that tree, the fruit from that tree over there. And it does look good, it's pleasing to the eye, and it could give me more wisdom. Maybe God isn't so good after all. He wants to restrict me. He wants to hold us back. He wants to stop us being fulfilled. How dare God? So she takes the fruit. What does the, what does the serpent do? Focus here. And that's the potential danger here, is oh, focusing on the prohibition. Outrageous. Oh, Focus on all that God is saying we're to do together. That everyone is part of. Don't get lost with just the prohibition. There may be some other reactions to the text. Not outrage, but partial acceptance. I agree with it mostly, but I don't agree with everything. And it still, to me, sounds too restrictive. And the the logical argument might be put forward, well, Look, sometimes, when the church gathers, a guy who is not an elder preaches. Surely, on the same basis, occasionally, couldn't a woman sometimes preach? Not doing like the lion's share, not taking the elder's position, but occasionally preaching. That leads to making a distinction about what's happening on a Sunday, that there are sometimes teaching sermons, and elders do those, and there are exhorting sermons, and non-elders, guy or girl, uh, does those. Or to put it in another way, there's teaching with a big T, and that's elders, um, but there is also teaching with a little T, uh, and and anyone can do that. I think that's a position that people reach out of really good heart and well-meaning but I want to take a moment to explain why I don't think it will be ultimately helpful and it will bring confusion. The issue, I think, is primarily to do with authority. If we construct things in those ways, elders do most of the preaching, but occasionally a woman might exhort by bringing a sermon. It sees the authority as mainly in or with the elders. The elders have it, the elders use it, and the elders can delegate it. Why might that be unhelpful? I think it will bring confusion. Because it almost puts too much emphasis there, the the authority that an elder has, and not enough emphasis here, but the authority is actually here so the confusion could be manifold elders could start getting confused the authority is with me and therefore i can shoot from the hip i can say what i like i can be very controlling and quite direct because i have the authority to do it i can preach in a way that other people can't some might go there some elders might actually go to a kind of crisis of confidence they look inside themselves for some sense of authority I think, Well, on this passage or on that topic, I don't feel very authoritative, so I need to find somebody else who can address that for me. Um, who am I to speak to women about being married? Uh, maybe I should find a woman to do that because I don't have the authority, because I don't have the experience. In which case, authority is moved from the word of God into my experience. I can speak authoritatively because I'm a married man. rubbish a single man could address us and could lead this church and could preach on marriage and we should be blessed by it if that person is under the word of God and has rightly understood it for themselves it's not about the authority or the experience of the elder it's about the word of God I think it could confuse non-elders who preach as well be they guy or girl and subtly, they can become more concerned with the elders' opinion than they should be. I'm I'm authority has been delegated to me. I've just got to make sure it lines up with what the elders would say. And therefore, the balance can shift to keeping elders happy rather than every person who preaches is under the authority of the Word of God. Don't be scared of the elders, fear God, it's His Word. Come to him. Could bring confusion there, and it could bring confusion to the church, all of us, when we're listening to somebody preach. Because subtly, it encourages us to judge how authoritative is this message that I'm hearing? How authoritative is this person who's bringing it to me? And those judgments we might just do entirely on the basis of what it feels like. Well, that was really authoritative. Those anecdotes were hilarious. PowerPoint was impressive. Props were really amusing. Uh, Their personal experience is so compelling. And then we start to make judgments about the people. Actually, she's preached brilliantly. That felt really weighty and authoritative. Shouldn't she be an elder then? So you can see, I think, how confusing the issue, even though well-intentioned, will lead us to trouble, if that's the word, the way that we went. Let's be clear. The authority is in the word. This is where it resides. When somebody preaches, we listen, therefore, in exactly the same way. Eagerly receiving it, like the Bereans, but then carefully weighing it. I'm going to examine the word of God. It's not, well, I should pay more attention because he's an elder. I'll pay attention, but not because of who I am. It will lead us into sticky situations, even if good intentions are there. Let me just conclude with a final reaction. You may react with full agreement. I have told you nothing this morning that you were not already persuaded of. So you agree agree with the interpretation and the, the way I've suggested it's to be applied in every and any church. If you do agree, there will be many challenges that you face because other people will assume that you're a misogynist or just a traditionalist or something. But let me highlight one particular challenge that I want you to think about. What will you do and how will you respond when visiting another church or moving to a new town, or going to that Christian conference, you hear a woman preaching and teaching. How will you respond if you don't think that's a biblical way of doing things? I would suggest this. Remember, like all of us, God's authority rests in his word. Whoever is speaking, therefore, listen listen well listen graciously if you take notes take notes if you glance up to the preacher and affirm something with a warm noddy or an amen or a smile jolly well do it for her benefit as well don't be so unkind that you allow a conviction on a biblical practice to become unloving. Well, she shouldn't be speaking. I'm gone. Or I'm arms folded. It's not right to be passive and it's not right to be aggressive, but I've found the middle ground of passive aggressive. <laughs> that, I would say as well, sorry. Oh, that's outrageous. That, that so misses the point. If you read... In Revelation, and I won't turn there right now, Jesus writes a letter to the church in Ephesus, and he tells them, you're really good at working out what's true and what isn't, but you're not really good at loving. And it's that church that will almost have its lampstand taken away. We must not allow any biblical conviction to lead us into a place where we do not love a Christian brother or sister. So you honour her when she speaks. You ask her or you you tell her what encouraged you from the truth that she spelt out. Do exactly as you would do for a guy. Do exactly what you would do for an elder. Eagerly receive something and then turn to the scripture to see if it's true. That just leads us to to behave in the same, same way. It's important. Discerning what's true and loving our Christian brothers and sisters, it's not like an either-or. It's not do one or the other. We do both. So again, for all of us, I would say, let's be like those Bereans. Let's adopt that attitude every time we come to the Word of God, every time we hear somebody uh, teach on it. I was brought up in uh, an Anglican church called St. Philip and St. James. It was a, a fairly informal place, but there was also a, a, a liturgy where things would be said from the front and there would be a response. And in that setting, it would sometimes be said, This is the word of the Lord. And the people, we would respond, Thanks be to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen.